63 to 59. That's it. 59 bleeping points for Tennessee as South Carolina drug you down into the mud. Bob, you were spot on in saying it might feel like an old school Wisconsin game. It felt like an old school Wisconsin game as Lamont Paris is a Bo Ryan disciple, and that was the the vibe they brought. They brought it. They wanted to roll around in the mud with you. They wanted to to ugly it up, and they did. And for whatever reason, Tennessee could not get going offensively. It was one of those games where it's like, what the hell is going on? Yeah. To where I, you know, jokingly, jokingly, it was like, are these guys on drugs? Like, because that's what it looked like. It looked like they were lethargic. Like they had just like were sleepwalking, or like they hadn't, you know, woken up. Everyone, you know, the stat line looks good at the end of the day, and you know, the whole hey, thirty points, twenty eight points, you you kept the streak going. It hits different when you lose a bad game to South Carolina, but like it felt like Dalton Connect was not immune to it either. I thought he slept walk. For a lot of the game. You know, he caught fire at the end. Still missed three key free throws. But I thought he slept walk for most of the half. It was really not until Tennessee went down nine points that he was like, I got to go now. Got to get to the rim. And he started getting there and hitting some shots. And then that opened up a couple threes. And, you know, some garbage time shots as you're desperately – not garbage time, but you're you're desperately trying to, to make up. He's hitting some clutch shots to keep you within, you know, distance if South Carolina would give you a missed free throw, which they didn't. But I thought everyone, I thought everyone was very, very lethargic. I thought everyone was off last night. It was tough. Um, going into that game, we talked about Michi Johnson, leading scorer for South Carolina. He only had three points in this game, and yet Tennessee still lost. Um, definitely felt like we were watching a an old school Wisconsin game, you know, not again, Bo Ryan before him, Dick Bennett, it's that type of basketball and it's hard to watch. I've seen my share of it. And that's what they did last night. And I felt like they, and I don't think Tennessee shies away from the roughness, but I mean, it was, it was rough. I mean, that BJ Mack guy was absolutely on a mission to just assert some physicality, you know, and it it was happening. And, you know, the refs were so inconsistent. Um, There there were just so many things to point to in that game. The other thing that was very odd to me was if you look at field goal attempts for South Carolina, they shot more threes than twos in that game. It's just so – yeah, that's not something I expected to see from them, honestly. If you're going to play slow and you're going to, you know, bring the pace to a screeching halt, it is beneficial to shoot more threes, especially if you can hit some. Yeah, well, and they – they're and I can't tell if their spacing was that good or if Tennessee was just that lethargic, as we've used the term, on defense too because they had many, many open looks from three. Yeah, Tennessee, you know, Jonas was in foul trouble, and you know, late in the game, Tennessee was trying to put Meshack on their big man, and that wasn't working. I, he was getting called for ticky-tack fouls, which you hope that you know if you're undersized, they let you fight a little bit in the post, especially at home late in the game. They were not letting Meshack fight, but Tennessee just kind of struggled with, with controlling the paint, and South Carolina was tougher down low and got key rebounds and got key loose balls, and then Tennessee was scrambling on defense a lot. And there's a lot of those open threes to me were just coming off of offensive rebounds. And then you're swinging the ball and, 
are coming off of Tennessee's press and they're they're hitting, you know, the open guy, which leading to the next open guy, and then Tennessee's trying to close out, and you see Zakai Ziegler fall for his 465th pump fake of the season <laughs> as he falls for a pump fake every time he tries to close out and gives up so many open shots because he's flying by. It was a problem for the entire team. By the way, shout out to a couple tweeters who pointed out, I completely misheard the LeBron James story. The, the player's dad just played with LeBron James okay. in Akron. <laughs> they were from Akron and played with LeBron. Because I was so confused at first. I was like, wait, that guy's dad's name is LeBron James too? How, what are the odds? <laughs> That's what I said. What, what are the odds? I said to myself as I was trying to go into the kitchen and fix some leftover lasagna. Huh? <laughs> Crazy. But, yeah, like, Tennessee was not good defensively, Bob. They were not sound defensively. I actually thought that Barnes and whoever runs the defense could have maybe gone to a press a little bit earlier to try to speed up South Carolina. But, really, outside of the first three minutes of the second half, Tennessee sucked. They yep. just sucked. Like, the first three minutes, like, okay, here we go. They fell behind seven. The next thing you know, boom, here's a big run. Santee's getting a steal and a fast break. He's hitting a three. And you're like, okay, here we go. And it's a one-point game. You're like, here we go. Take the lead. Take the lead. And miss layup. Miss layup. Fumbled ball by Jonas. Missed shot. Scoring drought. Scoring drought. Scoring drought. And South Carolina pulls back out to like five or six. And then you're like, okay, this is going to go down to the wire. They had one of those, Tennessee did, one of those infamous five-minute droughts in the second half. And it, it, it was at a such a critical time, too. And the only time I felt good about this game, it wasn't even in the second half for me. It was, uh, you know, Tennessee went down 7 nothing right off the top of the game, and then they kind of inched back in. And next thing you know, at one point, I think they were up 14-10, to 10, and I was of the mind, like, okay, we're it's going to be okay. And then that changed quickly again. And, and I, I just felt after that it was it was hard to, to believe at that point. I, you know, we stuck around. We wanted to see a comeback. We'd get close and then just couldn't get over the hump. Um, I mean, again, it's the other thing is as much as I don't want to say it in their own way, North Carolina's good. You know, nobody makes them play the way they want it. They dictated the pace. That's what we were worried about. And we, you know, you said it yesterday, John. They're like ranked what three hundred and forty second in pace. And yeah, the truth is. <laughs> They know that. They're unapologetically like, we don't care, man. That's how we play, and that's how we win, and, and they're making it happen. It's uh, uh, it's one way to win. No, I mean, South Carolina is now legitimate in my eyes. I think they'll be legitimate in everyone's eyes. They probably sort of already been ranked after beating Kentucky, and I know their non-conference wasn't great. Their schedule wasn't great, but you could just watch them and, and see they pass the eye test. Now, you know they'll definitely be ranked coming into the next polls after beating a top-five team on the road, but – they're a tournament team, in my opinion. I don't know if they'll stick around and like compete for the SEC crown, but I mean, like, I feel like they're definitely a top seven team in the SEC and in that league that might be good enough to get you in the tournament, depending on what they do moving forward. But you talk about those scoring droughts. I, I talked about the seven o or the seven point run. It was a seven o run that Tennessee had to start the half after falling down seven. Right. Vescovy hit his three with seventeen forty seven left to make it thirty three thirty three. Over the next, well, do the math for me, Bob. Seventeen forty-seven to eight eighteen. So that's basically what over the next. Let's call it nine and a half minutes. Right. That's nine right. minutes and twenty-nine seconds, if my math is correct. Tennessee scored nine points. Yeah. They had thirty-three points until Dalton connect, or they had forty-two points, excuse me, until Dalton connect went to the free throw line with eight eighteen left. That that's the first that you you hit 
point forty three and forty four or point ten and eleven of that you know ten minute run there, and and to me that tells the story. You had fallen behind you know five uh, six points there, and then even if you go further, like you got your forty fourth point there. Tennessee finished with fifty nine, and and Dalton Connect felt like he had what like twelve. 13 in the final, like, three minutes. So, like, I told you, you got your, what, your 40, 44th point? At what point? I said the the eight eighteen mark. Right. You had 46 points with 3.05 left. So, so you, you, you went another five minutes with three points. Crunch time of the game, where it's still kind of hanging in the balance. You didn't really fall down. You know, it, you were within seven basically that entire time. You were within seven. They hit two free throws to go up nine with 3.05 left. That Then Dalton Connect came back and got a jumper. That's when he kind of got going. But five points over that five-minute stretch. <clears throat> and the fans did – this goes back to – we were talking earlier about the vibe in the arena. They the, – because there was this moment, too, where South Carolina wasn't scoring – and so Tennessee had all these chances, and every time they would stop them and get the ball back, you could hear the fans, you know, the whole, again, the vibe was like, come on, let's go, here we go. You know, everybody everybody kept believing, like, it's going to happen, and it just never did. Um, you know, South Carolina, the other thing, um, at first blush, yeah, I don't, I don't think they're going to win the SEC. However, their remaining schedule is uh, – not quite like Tennessee's, and I can't speak for Kentucky and Auburn or Alabama for that matter, but this is what's ahead for South Carolina starting on Saturday. At Georgia versus Ole Miss versus Vanderbilt, at Auburn versus LSU, at Ole Miss, at Texas A&M, home against Florida, home against Tennessee, and at Mississippi State. It's not a brutal schedule. No, and like I said, to me, they're a tournament team now, and they'll be a top 25 team when the rankings come out, and they are going to be – really, I think they're going to be tough to play as long as that coach is there. I mean, I think that style of play, like, and if you can get your team to buy into it, and, you know, they were picked to finish last, and they're kind of having that Rick Barnes year, right, in year – was it year two, year three with Barnes? Whenever yeah. you went from last to, uh, you know, you ended up competing for an SEC championship. You talked about the crowd trying to will the comeback. I mean, you're right. Like it, forty-eight to forty-two at nine thirty-two left. Whenever they they went up six points at the nine thirty-two mark, and from the nine thirty-two mark all the way to the five oh five mark, South Carolina was stuck at forty-eight points. So like, you were down six, and then held your opponent scoreless for the next four and a half minutes, and you only cut into the lead three points. Yeah. And then they hit a three, and then you're back to where you started. You wasted basically four and a half minutes at home while you, you shut out your opponent and you couldn't make any lead, headway into the lead. Sam, you've been quiet. What were your thoughts on this game? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think for me looking at this game, something that I kind of noticed is that I think, you know, outside of your your two blowout wins in SEC play against Alabama and Florida, I think this team is – Struggled to get off to a strong start in the first half, and I think that's kind of lingered, you know, into into the second half of games. And you found a way to win most of them, but I think last night was a night where, you know, they drag you into the mud, like Bob was saying, and and dictate the pace of the game and, and play it at their style. And you know, you you kind of fight back there a little bit at the end of the first half, and then into into the start of the second half. But then you just 
you still kind of let them play their type of game and, and you never really got going. And I thought that, you know, there's just a lot of a lot of stuff that you can clean up. But there's also a, I think that's this game kind of also shows maybe the, the blueprint of how Tennessee might lose in March. We'll take your calls if you want to weigh in on the game. 865-546-8200 if you want to talk about basketball. If you want to talk about the football stuff, save that for hour two. Because yeah. we're talking basketball probably for the rest of the hour, but we'll get to the we'll get to the football news and we'll take your calls there as well. But like by my count, just going through the play by play, Dalton Connect didn't have a field goal until the two fifty six mark. He went the first seventeen minutes of the second half without a field goal. By my count, he went zero for five on a lot of jumpers. Zero for five by my count, and then yeah, he. He hit the jumper to cut it to seven at 256, and that's when he kind of got going and kind of went crazy and, and got Tennessee back within, you know, arm's reach. Within, like, hey, one possession, get a stop. Nope, here's a South Carolina three. Never mind. So, like, his numbers look good, 31 points, and, you know, it, it's – I tweeted it out after the game, but, like, it's a testament to how great he is that a 31-point game felt underachieving for him. But that's how I felt watching is, like, he, he – Dane Bradshaw kept talking about, hey, they, they look tired. They look like they, you know, he didn't say it, but like, like he partied in Nashville after beating Vanderbilt. Like, they look like they are kind of hungover on Tuesday. Sometimes you'll see that from an NBA team on back to backs or when they get to certain cities. Like, that's how they kind of look, just like they didn't want to be out there and connect. I don't know if it was the fatigue and the, the load he was having to carry, but he didn't look like himself either for most of the game. 0 for 5 in the second half until he caught fire. They did mention body language a lot on that broadcast, and I thought that was a good point, honestly. I think that, you know, for how bad Tennessee was playing and maybe some things going the wrong way, the ball not falling and maybe not getting some calls, like I did think you saw – I think you saw some guys kind of getting down on themselves and kind of pouting and not, you know, like not moving on to the next play when there was a lot of basketball left to play. And I think he kind of let that negative mentality maybe linger a little bit too long in that game. Bob, was it just a one of those games in college basketball that happened? Keep in mind, North Carolina did lose at home against Georgia Tech <laughs> last night. So, like, top five teams have been vulnerable. Top ten teams especially have been vulnerable, mostly on the road, not so much at home, but – you did have two go down last night. Was it just one of those games from Tennessee, in your opinion, just where it didn't go right and people shoulders are slumped because they're playing so poorly and it's just kind of a snowball effect? I, I think so. Sam and I were talking before we started the show that, you know, trying to look at any sort of bright side on this, um, we lost by four points, played horribly. I guess everybody's concern is, is that the beginning of a, you know, that, is that a beginning of a pattern? Yeah, because we're going into a very, very hostile environment, difficult game, difficult opponent on Saturday. You could argue sometimes, you know, Barnes doesn't have many losing streaks. I mean, but, you know, will they bounce back? Uh, that's the part. That's what I'm more concerned about, really, is that game at this point. Less concerned about the one that happened last night. It sucked. But to your point, you know, North Carolina lost to a team that was nine and eleven. Um, added to the legend about as did tennis. Well, Tennessee, it wasn't on the road, but adds to the legend of uh, going on the road, playing an unranked team, being a top ten team, and losing. That's that's happening a lot this season. So, uh, it's some of it's commentary on the state of college basketball. I just think it's hard for the fans to accept that and also not approach it with a football mentality of, you know, one loss in basketball doesn't ruin your season. But 
we've been there before, and so it gives us some cause for concern. I think it's fair to say that, and I think everybody feels a little bit of that when these kind of games happen because, again, it, it looks kind of familiar, sadly enough. Good call by you. I did say that North Carolina was at home. They were on the road, like you said, and that makes more sense. Probably didn't get the foul call at the end of the game. Whenever yeah. uh, their guy kind of got hurt or got hit whenever he was driving to the basket, that makes more sense. I don't have any positives to take away from the game, honestly. You said that, hey, you only lost by four. I don't – yeah, that, that's really searching for a silver lining. I don't, I don't see one. No Bradley Cooper, no Jennifer Lawrence. I thought everyone was bad last night. Connect, you could say, like, got hot, but the three missed free throws during that comeback, you know, kept you from having the game tied. We, we talked with uh, Ryan Shumpert at the beginning of the week, and one of the questions I posed to him was the, the state of Tobe Awaka. I thought he played better last night. He was still looking like it was an adventure when he got his hands on the ball, but he played meaningful minutes, had, I think, eight boards, six points. Um, that... That's the closest thing I saw to an encouraging sign. Estrella, his minutes were all right, too, although he misses a dunk after a great look by Santee. And that was kind of, was correct me if I'm wrong, was that in the second half or was that late in the first half? Late in the first. Okay. Yeah. Okay. To me, that, you know, with with Adu getting into foul trouble, I do. I mean, I didn't think Awaka played terrible, but I just think that that, that high ball screen action that they've been, roll, that they've been running with Adu and Connect just – you know, I just don't think that Iwaka is obviously as effective in that position, and no. I just think that that I agree. you're struggling to kind of find more of an offensive identity in terms of like running actions with Connect and a big man if Adu's not on the floor. Yeah, that's a good observation. I did think there were plenty of times though with Iwaka that the screen was wide and effective enough that Connect still got downhill. It's just Connect was missing like those little runners that he usually hits. There was one particular time where he missed and. Awaka was able to just easily get the offensive rebound and put it back up, though, or get fouled because of how much bigger he was than the the guard that was switched on him. So I do still think that that's a, a play that could work without Jonas, but it definitely felt different offensively when you have Jonas going back to missing five-foot shots and airballing a 12-foot jumper on an out-of-bounds you know, play whenever the game is slipping away from you. Like Whenever Jonas went back to not being a scorer, the offense did feel drastically different, and you hope that's just a a blip on the radar and just a bad game versus more more so like regression to the mean of who he's been kind of as an offensive player most it's, of his career here. It's a great observation because all I could see with you know Awaka played more like South Carolina plays last yeah. night, and we mm-hmm. didn't need that, right. you know. But but again, he had serviceable minutes, but he's more of a clear out guy, and you know uses the physicality and. Um, but yeah, we were texting last night, and I think I said we're seeing bad Jonas tonight. It was—it's been a long time since that happened, but came at a bad time. I, I kind of disagree. I would have maybe liked to have seen more Awaka last night, just because I do think we did need to match their physicality and get some hustle balls. And like to me, maybe maybe it would have just been more of the same bad offense, but. Whenever you're in a street fight like that, it was clear that South Carolina was going to be the aggressor. It was clear that South Carolina was going to be the one who set the tempo. Tennessee never really successfully got out and ran. I would have liked to have seen more minutes from Awaka and Meshack both because I thought they both could could kind of match that intensity. And just coming with the way it came across on TV, the fans seemed bad last night. Now, they didn't get a lot to cheer for, but that place seemed kind of – 
dead for a lot of it. Maybe it was different in the arena, Bob. But, like, those are two energy guys that could also make some plays that could get the crowd into it and kind of hopefully get some momentum rolling. And I I thought both those guys only playing 15 minutes each was kind of a misstep, especially – like he got bad gainy last night. Twenty three points of cardio, or twenty three minutes of cardio for him. Not twenty three yeah. points. He definitely didn't score twenty three points. It was twenty three minutes of cardio, just out there running around, vibes and missing shots. <laughs> and you know, Zakai with his worst game of the year, thirty two minutes of him just running out there getting cardio. Like it wasn't like he was really creating any offense for you with assists and setting things up. It wasn't like he was really helping on defense. I would have liked to have seen Tennessee go a little bit bigger with Meshack. And, you know, when when Jonas is struggling, maybe have, have more Awaka minutes out there. It's just kind of how I felt watching it. But in late in the game, speaking of Ganey, Ganey was in there and Santi wasn't, and mm-hmm. I didn't get that at all. That um, was really Because I thought, I thought Vescovy overall, I thought he played well again. You know, I mean, he – he shot a costly air ball at one point from three. I don't think anybody saw that coming because he had hit a couple, but – I would want him in there late in the game over Ganey at this point, and he wasn't, and I'm not not entirely sure why that happened. Um, yeah, it's it, 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 there's there again not a lot of uh, good stuff to find in this one. It was uh, it was very very tough, and um, uh, you know, response is going to be interesting for Saturday. Uh, think of all the. We've been talking about it like, man, this you know, this is going to be a big week. We're going to wear out on this show talking about Kentucky, and we'll get to it still. It's a big game nonetheless, but we were talking in terms that this was going to be epic, you know, but that was presuming we take down South Carolina, and it didn't happen. It's always a bad feeling when you lose the midweek game. You yeah. get to the weekend, and yeah, you're ranked number five, but you're not really ranked number five, and you, you got to go in there, and you're coming off a loss, and the losing streak and all of a sudden dropping to five and three in conference. And if you want to be a pessimist, if you want to be negative, it could easily be four and four. You could have easily lost that Georgia game. Like Georgia had you on the ropes. So like you, you, the doubt will start creeping in if you lose to Kentucky and it might not even be doubt as much as it's just a declaration. That this is the same old Tennessee and like it's, it's Dalton connect. And then the rest of the guys suck. Like you're very close to like that. That was the takeaway from last night from people. It was just like, Hey, Jonas, not consistent down low. Zakai, what is what the hell was that? Vescovy, you're you're not even in the game. Late, you're 26 minutes and and like we're, we're praising our stars when you do score a five points in like a little bit of a stretch there. And like if you take away the steal and the three to start the second half, you had five points the rest of the game. Josiah, oh god, Josiah, what are we doing? What are we doing, man? Please. First, first start of the game. Correct me if I'm wrong. Was that a Josiah quarter three? Yeah. Yeah, and you're like, okay, here we go. Clank! Clank! Place absolutely erupted when he got his one bucket. I mean, you would have thought it was it a big was, bucket, too. Yeah, but you would, it was, it was not far off the pace of when a walk on gets in the game and scores. I mean, it was, it was, it was a lot. You're trying to will him to have some confidence, and it did feel like a big bucket because Tennessee wasn't a drought and the game was kind of sliding away. And finally, he's like, okay, I'm going to get on the block here. I'm going to hit this little. Eight foot turnaround jumper in the lane, probably get fouled. Probably could have been an and one, and I'm going to actually be aggressive. And he hits that, and he's like I'm not going to shoot again. I'm good. I got my one bucket. We're good. 
And then what, again, what blows me away is you look at minutes played. He had the third most minutes played behind Connect and Ziggler. I still think he plays good team basketball. Like, I've compared him to the Draymond Green. Like, he's kind of this team's Draymond Green. He's this program's Draymond Green. Like, you don't always need points from him. Now, it does get highlighted when no one else is helping, right? When, like, when, when, when Zakai and Adu and Ganey are combining for, what, eight points between the three of them and Mayshack throw him in there, too, it's – Four guys that are getting minutes score eight points. It does all of a sudden shine the light on Josiah's offensive struggles, but he does still just do winning basketball stuff. But man, like he hasn't scored in double figures since Tarleton State. Yeah, and like the way he started the season was so good, and you're hoping it's like clicked. And maybe he's just a guy that just can't score. Maybe, although like we've seen him score, he scored 23 points against North Carolina State. He scored 20 points against North Carolina. Like, what has happened? Last year, I was like, oh, yeah, the wrist is messed up. That was supposed to be fixed. I would I would go so far. I don't, I don't want to remind myself of it. But, I, again, I was of the mind that during, and some of this coincided with Connect's struggle bus moments, there was a moment during the season where Josiah might have been the, you know, for a multiple game span, he might have been the most valuable player on the team. It's hard to believe we're saying that, but, you know, he – he was good for a little while, but it's just ever since conference play started, it's gone. You talk about conference play. I'm just kind of going through the game log here. Do you realize what he's shooting from three in the SEC? Bob, do you know? No, I don't. You want to take a guess? Uh, oh, just take a guess overall. First of all, I want to know how many shots you think he's taken from three. Um, well, he's not taking many shots, period. So, uh that one may not be that hard. Um, but as far as percentage from three, um, I would say 15%. By my calculation, Sam, he has shot 18 threes. So 18 threes in seven games. He has hit one. Wow. One of 18. One of 18. I, I don't think that comes out to, what you say, 18%? I, I think we'd kill for 18% at yeah. this point. Yeah. What is one divided by eighteen? Do we know? Do we know, Sam? We looking at like it's like about six percent. Yeah, five, looking at about five, five and, and a half percent. We'll round up. We'll give you six percent. <laughs> five and a half percent from three. The super senior bump. Play. Yeah, one of eighteen according to the game log. I'm looking at over three against Ole Miss, over three against State, over three against Georgia, one for three against Florida, over three against Alabama, over one against Vandy, over two last night against South Carolina. Add that up, it's one for 18. It's hard to believe. I'm looking right now at that. And these were against good opponents. North Carolina, 20 points, five boards. George Mason, 16, 6, and 6, or 15, 6, and 6. Illinois, 12, 6, and 7. Georgia Southern, 3 points, 8 boards. North Carolina State, 23 points, 7 boards. And then double-double against Tarleton State, 10 points, 10 boards. At the beginning of the season, don't forget, 14 points against Wisconsin. Right. 15 points against Syracuse. I know, you know, Syracuse might not be great, but like at least that was a yeah. a marquee game in that, the tournament. Like he came out of the season and was scoring. He looked like he was going to be your second scorer this year. Yeah. It finally clicked. Yeah, we were like this is the guy we were waiting for. It was great. I don't want to make him just the whipping boy of last night or of the, of the offensive struggles because again, it wasn't just him, it was everybody. And and to me, again, despite scoring 31 points, Strangely enough, that includes Dalton Connect because I thought that he wasn't great last night either. All right, Sam, take, take us to break. 
We'll continue the basketball conversation afterwards. It's the morning show on Fan Run Radio. Drink some White Claw irresponsibly to get away the, uh, the pain <laughs> from, from last night's game. Or to get you ready for Kentucky on Saturday. The b- good news, Bob, is that you do have an immediate opportunity to get the taste out of your mouth. Am I a sunshine pumper for saying that maybe I'm a little bit more confident in the game now after just playing the worst of the season? Not at all. Okay. Not at all. I, I kind of, and maybe we are, maybe we're trying to be optimistic intentionally, but your glass half full guy, I'll give you yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. No, I, I, I think they were more, I do think they were more susceptible to an ambush type of game in Lexington. If they had won last night, that's the way it kind of goes with them. Um, so yeah, maybe they're a little more hungry, um, a little angry, maybe. I don't know. To me, a sunshine pumper, Sam, is somebody that tries to make the the 10% full glass okay. seem half full. Okay. If, it, if the glass is half full and you're choosing to view that, I'll give you that. If the glass is 90% empty and you're trying to point to the 10%, that's when I'll be like, okay, that that's a little too extreme. And that's how a lot of people were with the football program for so long. You know, whenever people are throwing around the, the phrase sunshine pumper all the time, that's what people were doing there was trying to be like, hey – yeah, we only get one hour of sunlight, but hey, how about that sunlight, huh? Huh? It's dark, 23 hours, but that one hour, be grateful for that. I, I think you're being optimistic for saying that Tennessee can be reset and go into Kentucky hungry, but like ultimately, it comes down to what the team does. If the team comes out and plays well, you're right, Sam. If they come out and get their ass kicked, then you look like an idiot. Sure. Yeah, like, I mean... <laughs> You can say whatever cliche you want. You could be negative and say the team's done. They're going to get their ass kicked in Kentucky. But then it just matters what they actually do. And if you were being negative all week leading up to it, you still get to celebrate with your team and win. Like, that's how that works. Like So, like, you know, maybe being negative is better because either you're right or you're happy. Whereas in your scenario, either you're right and happy or you're going to be wrong and miserable. Yeah. I, I normally take that side with most of my sports teams. I'd rather get double the pain and double the pleasure. <laughs> I kind of agree. That's kind of how I'm wired, too. That's kind of how I'm wired, too. And I, I, I don't know if I think Tennessee is going to go up to Kentucky and win. I do know the game matters more now. You know, for the SEC race, it's almost a must. Like, you know, if we're looking at that race for 15 wins, 15-3, and three, like, you, you have to – to win at Rupp. Otherwise, you're going to be looking at having to run the table. Which, I mean, we've seen a Rick Barnes team do before, get hot down the stretch and, and, and go on these long win streaks. But it feels pretty bleak if you lose. And like I said, you're 5-3. and three And all of a sudden, people start pointing to, well, yeah, you could be 4-4 four and four if you didn't steal that one from Georgia. Because that was an 11-point game with like six minutes left. And like you were kind of dead. Twitter writes in posing a question. Would you take Chris Ledlam over Josiah? I did this comparison, um, but not in the last month. Uh, yeah, it seemed dumb. You know, in, to, in to a do. month ago, it was like it, it was well statistically at that point it was kind of a wash. But I was of the mind that but you got the whole locker room impact that Josiah brings because he's familiar with everybody and there's intangibles. He's a leader, like you said, John. He's our Draymond. So I was. At that point, I was like, I'm all in with Josiah. 
A month later, I don't know what the stats look like. I don't know what Ledlam's doing. I've, I don't believe Ledlam's been on a tear by any stretch. But uh, And again, that would be another new player, and there's been some debate about having new players in the mix already. So, I don't know. I, I'm not sure that that would be a, a material difference, having Ledlam on the team instead of Josiah. Yeah, just to clarify, when I say Draymond, I mean – I mean that from just from a basketball standpoint of doing like the glue guy stuff, right. running the defense, not the emotional leadership stuff. Because, you know, when you think of Draymond, you also think of him as like kind of the heartbeat of uh, of the Warriors in terms of leadership and setting the tone and locker room. Like Josiah needs more of that. Yeah. He needs to be more of a vocal leader and to be more of a passionate guy. But, yeah, I do think the intangible stuff on the court is similar. You look at Ledlam, I mean – his last handful of games, one for six against Villanova, two points, five for 14 and a one-point loss against Marquette, uh, two for six, seven points and a loss to Seton Hall, two for three against Creighton and a loss. Like, Yeah. I, I'll say no. I'll still take Josiah. I agree. Just because I do think that bringing in a, you know, a, bad, efficient, a bad efficiency, a low-percentage shooter, probably isn't good for this offense. Like, I do think whenever the rest of the guys do their job, I'm fine with Josiah taking three or four shots and doing everything else. I don't know if I want a guy coming in here and shooting 14 times and, and scoring 13 points. Like, that, those are 14 shots away from guys that I would rather have shooting the ball. That's kind of the way I look at it. And it's not like his three-point shot has been a success either. I mean, he might be shooting better than – uh, you know, Josiah is in, in conference play because, again, one for 18. Well, uh, our guy Jordan Moore sent the three of us some statistical stuff on, on it, that's pretty precise on uh, Triple J's shooting. And pre conference or non conference, he was shooting 41% from three. Yeah. Now, now he's shooting 7% was what he so Jordan gave him a little more love than we did but um, that must not be updated from last night yeah because it said well where does it say that 7% yeah 1 for 14 is what and, and I'm looking at these slides that Jordan shared with us yeah yeah well then I think that's just 1 for 14 from the top of the key oh yeah then 0 for 4 right so corner. you're right 1 yep. of 18 1 still. of 18 5.6% yeah which uh, maybe get off the top of the key, Josiah. That's not not working well for you. Maybe try one from the left corner, the right corner. You're over four. Maybe take one shot from the wing or the left corner. Honest to God, though, you look at the conference too. Even the even the stuff down low. He's not even you know forty four percent, forty three percent from uh, kind of the mid range. I mean, it's it's ugly, man. Well, to me, like just look at the shot chart and appreciate Jordan Moore for sending that in. Check him out over time. He sits in with William from time to time. For me, like 11 for 17 at the rim versus 4 for 9 at the rim in conference play. I, I know that the game breakdown is a little bit different, but like yeah. the fact you've played seven, seven conference games and you've only attempted nine <laughs> shots at the rim for him is a little crazy. Kind of the same as only shooting seven shots from like that mid-range paint where he's pretty good at the mid-range jumper, or at least has shot a lot of those. It's kind of his, his go-to shot. He's only shot the ball seven times there. So like 16 attempts inside the, the paint. In seven games. In seven games. And that's including like the mid-range, the free throw line and down. Like, I don't know. I don't know. It's just he's, he's gone back to being just kind of a, I'm, I'm going to shoot threes or I'm not really going to shoot. 
and that wasn't what he was doing in the uh, the non-conference portion of the schedule. But again, to go back to the Draymond comparison, you don't ask Draymond to score whenever Steph's hitting shots. Like as long as Clay's out there and you know Durant's out there and and other guys are out there scoring points, you don't have to ask Draymond to score. If he scores four points or five points, like that's fine because he's going to have eight rebounds and three steals and and play good defense. I don't want to p- pile on Josiah because I do think he's kind of the whipping boy of the of the program of the fan base. People point to him when things go bad. Everyone else has to score more, man. Yeah. Everyone else has to help. Like I understand the frustrations and the shooting. And the lack of shooting, the lack of confidence. I get that. I'm not making excuses for it. But, like, y- you need your top ten point guard in the country, apparently. Which I don't buy. But you need him to come out and, and hit a couple field goals, man. You can't go field goalless. You need him to dish some assists and create some offense. You need somebody off the bench. Like, somebody, for the love of God, hit a jump shot. Shout out to Awaka for giving you no six Six points off the bench, and Estrella for giving you two, but your two guards off the bench that played 38 minutes shot the ball three times and scored zero points. Meshack, I understand you're a defensive guy. You're my favorite player. But you at least got to shoot the ball a couple times. You can't be out there for 15 minutes and not shoot the ball once. Get to the rim. Do something. Get, get to the free throw line. Do something. Make them foul you. At least throw up a layup while you're getting fouled. And if they don't call it, at least I know you had a shot attempt. So, yeah, like you, you could pile on James, and I know people will, but Zakai 0 for 6, Ganey 0 for 3, Meshack 0 for 0. So, you got, you know, zero, or, uh, zero made field goals and nine attempts from your, your other three guards that aren't Santiago Vescovi. And to me, that that's a bigger story than, than James and his struggles. Stop thinking of him as a five-star All-American high school player. He's not that. Yeah, He's not a five-star All-American high school player. Stop thinking of him like that. And think of him just like Draymond Green, a defensive specialist. It'll make your life a little bit more tolerable watching Tennessee play basketball. At least that, that works for me. Once I made like that realization he's not an offensive guy at all, any points he gives you are going to be kind of house money, I started liking Josiah's game a lot more. Try that moving forward. Yeah, and we talked about this earlier in the week. If we can... I don't think it's that high of an expectation. If you could expect 16 to, on a good night, 20 points from, from Josiah and Vescovy, then you're doing all right. And it, it, you know, yeah. we're, But we're just not near that at this point. Yeah, 16 is the number I want between those two. Yeah. And that's like, it could be 4 and 12. Like, that's not, like, Vescovy should be able to give you 12 points. And Josiah should be able to find four. Like, that, that's the key number I'm looking at. Last night they gave you, they gave you 12. By the way, you lost by four points. If <laughs> they gave you 16, it's a tie game. <laughs> Drink some White Claw hard seltzer. Pick you up the vodka, the good stuff, or go back to the OG variety pack. Only 100 calories in that can. White Claw's got a lot of stuff you could buy, man. They even got the non-alcoholic seltzers now. Support the people who support us. We appreciate them and Cherokee Distributing for their support locally. Hour one of the books. We'll kick off hour two of some stuff you might have missed from yesterday. Then we'll get into the football story. It's the morning show here on Fan Run Radio. All right, let's talk Tennessee football as we were once again in the crosshairs of the NCAA and once again front and center in the national college football news landscape. 
notice of allegations, inducement, accusations, private flights, private jet flights for Nico. Bob, what do you got for me? Well, yeah, I mean, at this point, it's pretty well chronicled. This broke yesterday afternoon. Um, the the key words here, you know, was NCAA is investigating someone affiliated with Tennessee, not employed by Tennessee. Spire Sports. Spire the, Sports. The collective at Tennessee, the NIL yeah. collective. Um, and, uh, yeah, for breaking rules regarding NIL payments to athletes. Um, what we also know now is uh, – you know, Donde Plowman, her, uh, she sent a letter to the NCAA that was in a word nuclear. Um, she she threw down and and I think, obviously, as Tennessee fans, we're fans of that. But I think it's it speaks to a bigger issue with the NCAA, and I think a lot of people in the NCAA, or I'm sorry, a lot of colleges. And athletic programs are watching this one closely because I think everybody's got the same level of exasperation with the NCAA. They've decided to try to come in and govern. It's almost like the par- parents that try to break up a high school age party where the you know there's been booze for hours and hours, and then you come in and you know say, "Hey, stop, stop drinking." You know, it's like you 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 try to shut that stuff down at the in the early going, and you know, NIL's been in play for multiple years now, and now the NCAA decides they want to get involved, and um, we're seeing it happen. It happened with Florida State a couple of weeks ago. There's the deal going on right now with the University of Florida. Um, <clears throat> in some ways, it's a little bit existential for the NCAA too. I think it's like they're. I think they're. I, it, it feels to me like some of this is almost like, in broad strokes, kind of like job protection for them in their mind, or at least some of the people there. And that's uh, wrong-headed if that's the approach. Yeah, in your analogy, the parents also have a fully stocked <laughs> liquor cabinet with yes. all the mixers you could ever want, and they got the the coconut rum and the other, the Smirnoff, the, the flavored White Claw vodka, all the tasty stuff that the high school girls like drinking and all the stuff that's easy for the high school boys to drink. And they got it all right there, an ice they got an ice maker. They got a lot of plastic cups. They got all that just right there in front of the high school kids, too. And they're like, hey, we're not saying you can't drink it, but hey, you know, we're not watching. Yeah. We're going to leave you alone in this basement. We'll be we'll be out of the house for a bit. Yeah, and then they come back later and go, hey, what are you doing? Yeah. You know, stop. Stop. You know. We gave you all the bottles. We gave you everything you needed. We had some, uh, you know ping pong balls and plastic cups for you to play some beer pong if you wanted. But we're going to ask you not to do it, even though we said that we never said you couldn't do it. Because that's what, you know, that was Tennessee's defense, and that's Tennessee's what Tennessee's defense and the rest of the country's defense is going to be as the NCAA retroactively tries to go back and punish schools for rules that weren't in place. Right. Right. And, uh, you know, some of the language and I'm sure a lot of people have seen Donde's letter. It was floating around on social media, but um, some some definite solid and strong legalese, you know, uh, quote, factually untrue, procedurally flawed, intellectually dishonest. I mean, she she threw down and reminded the NCAA that UT had efforted to meet with them in December to discuss the state of things. The NCAA passed on that meeting. Um, 
not even sure they responded to the request. It said they were denied. Yeah. So I, I, I assume they responded and said no since it said denied rather, rather yeah. than just said didn't respond. You know, I liked I liked just the stuff that, that she put in bold yeah. in the letter. Just yeah. to kind of be like, hey, in case you missed it, here are big takeaways. Here are big points. We owe it to student athletes and their families that have clear rules. You didn't have any rules. It was the Wild West. The NCAA owes member institutions a spirit of partnership and problem solving. A.K. like we tried to talk to you. We tried to get a meeting. We tried to ask you to make some rules. Other schools have asked you, hey, we need you to be a little bit clear on what we're doing here. And also she went out and was just basically like, hey, by the way, you can't say six months ago that I was the best wife you've ever had. I'm the best lover you've ever had. You love me. I'm so good. I do everything right. And then come around and say six months later that you've always hated me and that I don't do anything right. Because that's essentially what the NCAA tried to say. And in her words, you said she said, you can't say six months ago that Tennessee was the was cited for exemplary leadership and being like a a a school to follow in terms of how they handle the way they do their business when it came to the Jeremy Pruitt stuff. Like Tennessee got credit for doing everything on the up and up, self-reporting, doing all of that. The NCAA praised them and said, Hey, this is a school everyone needs to strive to be like. She said, you can't say that six months ago and then turn around and say that like we don't have any institutional control and that <laughs> right. we're doing all this and we're doing things the wrong way. Make up your mind. Do you love me? Am I the best ever? Or have you always hated me? Which one is it? It's true. And, and you know, we, we talked last week on a totally different topic, but we were talking about the, uh, the level of game that our administration has at this point between Boyd, White, and Donde. And think about this uh, just yesterday, maybe honestly frustrated for sure, but a bit proud of the level of her response, the promptness of it. Imagine the previous regime trying to handle things like this. It just, again, as much as, as we can be, I feel like this university's athletic program, the university at large, is in good hands with these folks. Um, I, I, I just, that, that was a takeaway for me yesterday. Well, too. in the past, they would have said, we're taking this seriously and, you know, yeah. we'll, we'll keep you updated on our findings or we're not going to speak on it publicly. Whatever the yeah. hell they would have said, they wouldn't have came out on the offensive. It would have been all reactionary of, well, yeah. We are cooperating with the NCAA and <laughs> yes. blah, 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 blah. No, this time Donna came out and said, you know, here it is. We're not wrong. We're right. Nobody at our school has broken any rules. Nico's done nothing wrong. The NCAA has been dishonest. You know, that's straight up calling them a liar. Her last thing in bold was, the NCAA and member institutions owe it to the public and all stakeholders to be intellectually honest. So that's her being a member institution, letting the public see, like being honest with the public. Like, hey, here's here's our response. Here's everything laid out. The NCAA, on the other hand, is being intellectually dishonest by saying we're doing things wrong, <laughs> by, by trying to retroactively put in rules and try to to hold on to any crumb of power that they might have had in the past because is it the Austin case, I believe is what it was, the Austin case, when, when the Supreme Court and Brett Kavanaugh and, and all of them kind of came down and said, hey, the NCAA, your days are numbered. You're breaking these antitrust rules. What you do is kind of illegal. Once that opened up, the NCAA at, at the time just kind of washed their hands and said, okay, NIL, here you go. Good luck. 
And that's how schools operated. And the, and the power went back to the states. And in California, by the way, what Nico did with his contract and taking his money was not wrong. At the time, Tennessee has since adopted similar rules for high school prospects. What was done was not wrong. Yeah, and, and then another bit of subtext from yesterday was uh, Spire Sports. They lawyered up. They brought in this guy, Tom Mars, who is uh, a renowned uh, attorney that has gone to war many times with the NCAA. Um, big name. I think he's based in Arkansas. Um so he, he did a lot in terms of the students trying to get eligible on right. their whenever the NCAA is declining their their waiver transfers and all that. Right? Yeah, correct. But I think that's an interesting thing to keep an eye on too. And our guest in the nine o'clock hour is going to talk about this because um, we're bringing in a person that um, essentially runs not an NIL collective, but uh, but a, a company that manages a, a ton of NIL money um, just to get their perspective on. Uh, some of the ins and outs of all of this. And again, can NIL and the NCAA effectively coexist? Um, because right now it feels a little fractured, and the NCAA seems to be making that making matters worse in that regard. But the reason why I think it's interesting for Spire to make this kind of move, and I say this with all due respect, I think what we're learning, too, is the NIL game in general is getting... It's, it's very sophisticated, and NIL is, is less about what kind of um, like creative partnership things can we put together for student-athletes. There's, there's a lot of legal ramifications tied to this, and you need probably more legal points of view than maybe some of these collectives have had in the past. It's been more of a, hey, let's put something together and let's get one of the athletes out to you know tout – milk at Weigel's and we'll give them some money that way. And uh, there's just, there are bigger deals than that. Nico's one of them, obviously we've, we're right in the, the, the spotlight when it comes to that particular deal. And it's, it's bared itself out in this situation too. So I think we're seeing a moment in time where it hits home for, for a collective like Spire that this became more of a, maybe more of a big boy, situation than you think it is in the past there's a lot of money you'll hear this from our guest jason belzer today if you look across the country the amount of money that's flowing through nil is uh it's pretty eye-popping well and also like it it was always going to be like i don't want to say a wink wink deal but like you knew you were kind of playing with fire in the sense of like signing high school prospects to these deals and and I understand that Spire Sports is going to say, hey, we didn't break any rules and none of these contracts were based on Nico coming to Tennessee. But, like, you're also signing with something called the Vol Club. You know what I mean? Like, the Vol Club is going to want that guy to – they're going to do deals with Tennessee athletes. Unless I'm mistaken, I'm unaware of the Vol Club having any any partners with anybody that's not a volunteer. So, like, I mean, I understand it's like kind of a wink-wink thing, but at the same time, that's on the NCAA – for having what Donda Plowman says, no guidelines, no plan. That's for the NCAA for what Brett Kavanaugh said was wanting to just take advantage of players, not pay them any money, not treat them like employees. Like this all comes on NCAA's, uh, it comes on their head. It, you bring it to their doorstep and it's a lack of planning over the last decade. Because I think the tide really started shifting, you know, back when what Northwestern's quarterback started 
trying to get a union together. Yeah. Like, I mean, that, that was kind of whenever people were like, okay, this is coming one way or the other. And then you had the O'Bannon case with the NCAA and, like, you know, like, hey, yeah, you can't really put these guys in video games. You can't use their likeness. We know who quarterback number 16 from Tennessee is. We know that's Peyton Manning. You can't do that. And, like, that ball got rolling and you knew, like, okay, the momentum's growing. The public sentiment is changing. You're going to have to pay these guys. And then the NCAA is just like, nah, we're good. We're just going to keep staring straight ahead or looking down at the ground. Or maybe looking behind us in the rearview mirror and not looking ahead of us. Maybe that maybe that's a better analogy. And then it gets here, and the Congress and the government says what you're doing is wrong. So the NCAA has no plans. It's like okay, well, we'll wash our heads of it, have at it. And then they realize, wait, if we don't govern, we're completely useless. We have no, we have nothing else to bring. So now let's try to govern stuff in the past retroactively. Let's try to make this plan now. Instead of having a plan in place, like I said, when they've had a chance over the last 20 years. And that's why I think there's, again, I mentioned earlier, I believe this too, there's so many institutions that will be watching. They've been watching for the last few weeks with some of these other cases that have come up. Because you think about the way we've all talked about it with conference realignment, how the NCC, NCAA rather has been rendered ineffective um, if this happens again in this type of instance, I mean, you start looking at there, you know, there's a, a term of uh, a business going out of business. Um, I mean, you could be seeing, I, I said it earlier, I don't think it's uh, under overstating it that it's it's a bit ex- existential for the NCAA and um, how they're going to handle this one. Well, they've already handled it poorly, is what it's sounding like. But it's going to be very interesting to see what happens. It's it's interesting. Tennessee is kind of in the spotlight right now, and uh, a lot of people watching. 865-546-8200 if you want to weigh in on the topic. Sam, send us a break. We'll come back. We'll still look at the big picture here for Tennessee Athletics. It's the morning show on Fan Run Radio. You just know that Pat Forty and his grubby little fingers couldn't couldn't hide his excitement as he's typing out this story yesterday. That was like 800 words of just like, yeah, something's coming for Tennessee. Don't know what it is. Somebody from the NCAA has tipped me off, but I don't really know exactly what's coming. I'm Pat Forty. I got grubby little fingers. <laughs> yeah. I had an encounter with him at SEC Media Days in 2015. And it wasn't even with him. I was near him. And he was telling someone, he was talking trash about Tennessee. And was basically like, you would think that, you would think, it was about Tennessee being excited about making the switch to Nike jerseys and it came around like the same time. And he was talking about, you would think these rednecks had just won a championship the way they're acting. Like, basically, like, these guys are so stupid for caring about these ath- these jerseys. And at that point, I was like, man, this guy just really doesn't like Tennessee fans. To like be sitting there like just mad that fans are enjoying something. So literally take out the fact that he probably gleefully was dropping this uh, NCAA story yesterday. I'm looking at one of his posts from uh, last night and he wrote, so Saturday is the best slate of men's college basketball this season. We were talking about this yesterday. Houston, Kansas, Tennessee, Kentucky, and Duke, North Carolina. And then he wrote, except... Tennessee lost tonight at home to South Carolina, and they wrote in UNC just lost to nine eleven to nine and eleven Georgia Tech. 
they're kind of killing the mood. I mean, he you can just tell he's just reveling in this stuff. You well, know? at least they included North Carolina in that for yeah. killing the mood, I guess, instead of just singling out Tennessee for losing. Which, I mean, he's not wrong in that. Like, them both coming off losses does take it down a bit, but also makes those teams more desperate. I think Pat Forty is just a name in this position. This could have been written by two or three other national media guys, and we'd have the same reaction. You know, Dan Walken or a Jeff Goodman, Jeff now. Goodman, a Dennis Dodd. <laughs> I mean, there's there's plenty of people that seem to to revel in the fact of tennis or re- revel in the face of Tennessee misery or potential demise. Keep in mind, Pat Forty wanted us to play in an empty stadium after the. The, the mustard bottle golf ball old Miss game. That was his big take, is that Tennessee should have to play their next game in an empty stadium. Uh, I never saw that. He yeah, said the school that. should be have attendance wow. suspended. Zero percent attendance. Punish these rednecks for th- daring to throw a golf ball in a mustard bottle. Sounds like attendance at a ladies' swim meet, right? Be sweet, Bob. But you're right, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Women's Swimming. Yes, he, he would be comfortable with that. <laughs> but, yes, he, he has an axe to grind when it comes to Tennessee. Like I think that's clear. He maybe is the worst perpetrator of it in the national media. And maybe it's because, like I said, I heard him put down Tennessee and Tennessee fans just in person off the record to his other cronies for some reason. And he was total, uh, again, I have friends who are Kentucky fans. He's total Team Patino, too. Okay. Uh, yeah, not a not a Cal fan. He he loves Rick Patino. Is he a Patino fan, like, just through and through? Because I, I guess I would have thought he was a Louisville fan. Was he? Well, because I think it was based when Patino was in Louisville. Right, but yeah. now that, like, Louisville doesn't have Patino anymore, did he just, like, disassociate with that school? Yeah. Kind of, it was just yeah. only with Patino? He still recants all his stories about Patino, mostly, and. Yeah, which is funny. Like, yeah, whenever he talks about scandal and everything, like yeah. knowing that he's a Patino boy. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of those things I asked you about last week when it came to, like, the Titans coverage. And, like, am I looking for it? Am I thin-skinned? Like, you say the same thing about Tennessee fans. And, like, I, I do think there's something there when oh, it comes yeah. to national media versus Tennessee. And, like, it got magnified and multiplied with the Greg Schiano stuff, but I think it was there before the Greg Schiano stuff. The Greg Schiano stuff made it worse with a lot of people. Oh, I agree. I, you know, and I remember, I was thinking back to this Dick Vitale, who we we talked about yesterday, but this is on a more um, like professional note. He uh, professional people have to poop too, Bob. I know, but he he made comments on air back when uh tennessee was the whole issue with how they were treating conzo martin you know was very very critical of the fan base you know that was tied around the petition and all this other stuff so you're you know i mean national media is definitely uh thrown down on the tennessee fan base often uh and and tennessee as an institution or an athletic program too i mean dane o'neill compared dave hart to judas (laughs) <laughs> that was something she wrote she compared Dave Hart celebrating with Conzo Martin during his Sweet 16 run and then you know having this happen having him leave not offering him a better contract she compared that to Judas betraying Jesus that was something she wrote I remember it Conzo Martin was treated like he was an elite college basketball coach 
and like Tennessee fans were just being racist rednecks because they were daring to question why a team with three guys that would go on to at least have some some time in the NBA, why they would be struggling to make the tournament in year three. Tennessee was racist for for daring to have a couple thousand people want their old coach back, who was the best coach they had had in you know recent basketball history. Like that—that that was kind of the image painted. Which, by the way, Conzo was the one that left Tennessee, and that was us getting what we deserved. That was what was written. Like Conzo leaving to go to to go to Cal was what we deserved. We got, we reaped what we sowed. We deserved it for for daring to to hold a coach accountable for not winning enough games. Like we're the only fan base that does that. Which, by the way, Conzo went to Cal and failed. Went to Missouri and failed. Not coaching basketball anywhere now, is he? Uh, no. So, I mean, like, you're kind of vindicated on that. He wasn't a very good coach. No matter how bad they wanted you to think he was some elite basketball coach, he wasn't. So, yeah, I mean, it's not, it's not, it's not new. It's been happening a long time, at least since I've been, you know, doing media and, and paying attention to this. I don't know how it was in the early 2000s. And how they covered Tennessee then, I'm not sure. Well, I think it's it was different, and a lot of that's because a, a, a lot of it now gets amplified sure. with social media and other things. And uh, you know, that's even back in the Conzo era, there was a there was a pretty big component of that. So, yeah, I think it was I think it was less intense back in those days, but just because there were less avenues to flex that kind of information sure i know there's some people screaming at the tv talking about espn stealing the heisman from peyton so i mean well like, that's true people would say hey, it's been happening in the 90s and and you had you know on game day is it reese davis talking about going back to your trailer parks and all those things and <laughs> you, you had that so yeah there's some people say that it's been going on for a long time I remember Dennis Dodd talking about Bubba from Pigeon Forge. He misspelled Pigeon Forge. When he was talking about us being mad about Greg Schiano, about Bubba from Pigeon Forge complaining and protesting. and That's what they think about. It's just dumb rednecks. Never mind the fact that you got a guy sitting here that created, you know, radio, t- television broadcast as we, as we see it now. Well, I was just going to say, they say all of that, and then ESPN, who played a big hand in that, you – air the Paul Feinbaum show every single day and you see um, yeah. kind of the epitome of, uh, of redneck activity there. But What's promoted there? Yeah, they, they're they begging for redneck activity yeah. with, with Feinbaum. So. Yeah. Hour two in the books. We'll kick off hour three talking to an NIL specialist. Who we got, Bob, coming up? Jason Belzer. Um, gentleman out of New York that is a founder and CEO of an organization called Student Athlete NIL. Uh, an attorney, adjunct professor in sports business law at Rutgers, uh, accomplished guy and, and pretty smart guy when it comes to this topic. And I think there's some through lines with what we've been talking about and what's going on with NIL. That's coming up next. Stick with us. So that was interesting. I think the biggest takeaway for me um, in all of that, it, one thing I wanted to do was get maybe a, a point of view that's on a more national basis. Uh, but this, obviously, Jason was a guy who's paying attention to what broke in the news yesterday. But he brought up a good point that 
uh, and we've talked about it. I I use the term existential, and he did too. I want that noted. Um, that, and unbeknownst to him, he he said the same thing. And that is, the NCAA. This is really important. Uh, universities are watching. The NCAA is watching because if Tennessee's volley back yesterday from Donde of hey, we're not taking it. We're going to fight on this. Um, the the NCAA may then have the the grounds to be able to go back to Congress and say we need more juice in this conversation. You've got to help us here. Jason mentioned it. Whether Congress will be willing to listen because they they do have a few other <laughs> really critical things going on. Um, that could be that could be game over for the NCAA basically if they don't get support from a higher level or a higher power. Um, to try to govern this thing down the line, you know, there were all sorts of terms yesterday. They're all the same. The, you know, toothpaste is out of the tube, the genie's out of the bottle, the horse is out of the barn, all that stuff. Um, it's kind of, we're at that moment. And I think what's going to happen with this deal and some others in the next matter of months is going to be really telling. I am completely comfortable with Tennessee being the one to lead the charge. It's kind of cool. It's kind of cool, you know. I think so, too. I do think that we started a new trend of fan bases feeling like they have power when it comes to their coaching hires. I do truly feel that way. You've seen that with a couple of other fan bases. Whenever some names have gotten leaked, them feeling like they can stop that or even coming being able to stop it or get their coach fired, kind of like Auburn did with Brian Harson. They could have just got him out way quicker than most other schools would have been able to. They stepped it up a little bit. They were like, hey – He's having sex with one of his workers, and I don't know if that was ever proven or not, but he got on the internet, and that got the heat cranked up on Harson. Next thing you know, he was fired not too long after. But I do think we kind of were trendsetters when it came to that, and I do think Tennessee can be the one that kind of sticks it to the NCAA. At the very least, like I said, Donda said, lawyer up, let's go. We got money to spend. We are not one of these lower-ranking schools. We are one of the most powerful sports programs in the country. We are, as Danny White calls it, America's college sports city. Nothing stops this train. You're not going to stop our momentum. Obviously, that's led by football. You're not going to attack our football program, and you're not going to attack our beautiful baby boy, Nico, the Polynesian prince who was promised the Tennessee tribal chief. We're going to fight for it. And I'm completely fine with that. I did feel a little bit better when he said, ah, you know, 13 might be a little low, but you know, Tennessee will be all right. Yeah. Because he's a, you know, he's someone who has no ties to Tennessee. Right. So that makes me feel like, hey, you know, it's not just necessarily a, a homer telling us that's there's nothing to worry about. That's someone that has no benefit for lot to lying uh, to us. Yeah, it's that very thing we were talking about earlier. Are we a little thin-skinned as a fan base on all these other things? Um, right. And so it was good to... That's, that was really the goal, to get a perspective from a professional who's not here and is also not, you know, someone that's got a bone to pick with Tennessee like some of these. Well, I'm going to leave it. You're, t- you're telling me to be nice, so I'll leave Be it sweet, Bob. Yeah. Be sweet, Bob. Let's play some overrated underrated. Overrated. Very overrated. It's overrated. Overrated, my friend. Overrated. I want to tell you why. I think that's a solid rated right there. It's perfect rated. He underrated, man. He has some swag. He has some real swag. Lobsters are underrated. They don't die.
Alrighty. Overrated, underrated. Some news coming out in the NBA. Overrated, underrated. The Steph Curry versus Sabrina Ionescu three-point contest. Uh, I'm actually looking forward to seeing it, but I, I think maybe it's a little overrated. Uh, I think that uh, um, if they think that's going to save part of the Saturday night NBA stuff, I think they're mistaken. But I, I'd probably watch. I, I'm interested in it, but I, I wouldn't say it's underrated. Either. Do we know what the format's going to be? I, I think it's just kind of normal. Uh, See, I don't want that. I want head-to-head. Head. I want head-to-head. Right or am I wrong? Do you want? Well, to it do says the, head to head. That's here. what I. Yeah, that's what I thought it was. Okay, I want to go shot. I want to do like white man can't jump style. You ever seen white man can't jump, Sam? At the beginning of white man can't mm-hmm. jump. Yeah. Five from the top of the key. Let's go. Make miss, make miss. Who, who's going to make the most out of five? I, I want some pressure on there. Not hey, you know, you're going to shoot the ball twenty five times. There's going to be money balls, and we'll have to score. I, I want pressure. Do we think Steph wins, or do we think that Ionescu wins? Or do we think that Steph lets Ionescu win? Like a little battle of the sexes, Billie Jean King? Probably C. Do you think he's going to let her win? I kind of think so. You think so? Just put over the put over the girl, make her feel good. Hey, the WNBA is good. Ionescu's a baller. Silver I do think maybe he like might catch him. the NBA a little bit. WNBA. Curry's probably comfortable enough in his skin as, as the greatest shooter of all time. But also at the same time, he still would be losing to a girl. The thing that surprises me is, uh, and again, I don't proclaim to follow women's basketball that regularly, but when Ionescu was in college and she was a dominant player, she was more of like, to me, like a almost like a, a female Jason Kidd, you yeah. know, did a little bit of everything. I didn't, I didn't realize she was a prolific three point shooter, but I guess, I guess she is. Yeah, I was gonna say she was a triple triple double person. I was gonna yeah. say Rajon Rondo just because maybe he was in the news yesterday, but yeah, Jason Kidd. Not really just a Caitlin Clark type of shooter. Correct. I was going to say, maybe Caitlin Clark next year is a better match. That would be – I'd watch that. Yeah. Caitlin sure. Clark now. I mean, I yeah. don't have yeah. a game oh, yeah. on She's Saturday or WNBA. Sunday, I guess, but just bring her now. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I'm not going to apologize. I love watching Caitlin oh, Clark, yeah. i got to say. Yeah. I'll be honest. I, whenever I saw this, it's like, it's pretty cool. So I'll say it's underrated. I know some okay. people might blow back and be like, oh, it's women's basketball or whatever. But INS was a baller, and like I said, if they do it right, I want to do five from the top of the key. Just rotate one after another, one after another. Is she the best three-point shooter in the WNBA? I don't know. I don't know if she is or not. She shot 44% from three last year, so, yeah, that's pretty good. That's, that's obviously really good. Okay. Uh, overrated, underrated. Uh, this year's Super Bowl matchup. I know kind of after the championship game, some people might have been rooting for the Lions. Some people might have been rooting for the Ravens to knock off the, the Taylor Swift hype train. Overrated, underrated this year's Super Bowl matchup. Um, I think it's overrated. Uh, two good teams. Obviously, Kansas City is kind of hitting their their stride at just the right time. Um, but because of the spectacle around it, with with Kelsey and Taylor and Brittany Mahomes and don't forget Jackson, Jackson and the you know the State Farm commercials with Mahomes and Andy Reid and and so I think the culprit in this is really everything swirling around the Chiefs makes it overrated for me. It's a great matchup. It's a great matchup team wise, but I'd say it's overrated for that very reason. I'm kind of getting fatigued hearing about all the other stuff swirling, all the noise. I gotta say, I feel like it's a little underrated just because I don't think we're giving Patrick Mahomes credit. For being on the Tom Brady trajectory. Like, Tom Brady got us to our TVs. 
we have maybe the new Tom Brady and Andy Reid, who is, you know, maybe going to pass Bill Belichick. Like, how many more Super Bowls does Andy Reid have to win before we're like, hey, he is on Bill Belichick's level, if not past Bill Belichick? Because unlike Bill Belichick, Andy Reid's done it at two places. Yeah, I know he never won a Super Bowl in Philadelphia, but he made a lot of conference championships and he made it to the Super Bowl. And if Donovan McNabb wasn't throwing up on himself because he was tired and out of shape and fat at the end of the, the two-minute drill of that Super Bowl, maybe they would have won that Super Bowl or at least gotten into overtime. How many, how many more games does Andy Reid have to win? And also, he should get consideration because of that whole punt, pass, and kick thing he did when he was a kid, and he looked like he looked like Zach Eady out there, right? <laughs> He's a prodigy. He's a prodigy. Although I will say, I, I don't, I won't go as far as calling thirteen-year-old Andy Reid a big giant circus freak. He was just a really large boy. Yeah, there are plenty of boys I think walking around that look like that. Yeah. Now maybe not in those pads, having to compete against kids that are like half his size, but. I won't give him circus freak level, but he—he's he as big as the circus. <laughs> he's an NFL. He's an NFL lifer. He is an NFL lifer. He was a grown man at the age of thirteen. But I'm serious. Like, how many, how many championships does he have to win? Because right now we have the new Brady and Belichick going after what a third Super Bowl together. Mm-hmm. That puts them in terms of legendary status all time. Like you know, that's you know going back to. Walsh and Montana and Young and, you know, I guess I couldn't really think of who the Dolphins quarterback was. I, who was the Dolphins quarterback? I, Marino? Marino? No, no, no. The guy won Super Bowls uh, with... Uh, oh, Bob Greasy? Yeah, Greasy. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, like, I mean, I guess they, did, they only won, what, two together? So maybe not the same thing. But yeah. just quarterback, quarterback-coach combos is what I'm going for. But they won... Dolphins won back-to-back. Yeah, back they then. won two, right? Yeah. Andy Reid, you know, we talk about Bill Belichick being... Only twenty six ways, uh, twenty six wins away from the all time record. Andy Reid's at two fifty eight. That I mean, I basically just puts him four seasons behind Belichick. That puts him, you know, six seasons of ten wins away from being right on the doorstep. I don't know if Andy Reid wants to coach long enough, but like, if he coaches six more years with Patrick Mahomes, there's a chance he retires the all time winningest NFL coach of all time. It's interesting. Like, his age is only 65. Belichick's 71. So, like, you know, the weight differences, I get that. But, like, you could easily tell me Andy Reid coaches the next six or seven years. And he's going to have Patrick Mahomes for all six or seven of those years. So, if he averages 10 or 11 wins a year, that makes him the all-time winning as head coach. Can I ask a quick question? What you guys think of the... <laughs> State Farm commercial where they're sitting at the restaurant. In the nug- Do it again. Yeah, with this the, time with, with the nuggies. The nuggies. I have to admit, I, I've grown to like that. Man, it cracks me up. That one's great. I also like the uh, the one with the when he, you know, it was, it was a callback from the '90s where they come up to the guy painting the field. And it's like you missed a letter. <laughs> yeah. It's just chefs instead of chiefs. Like that's a that was an iconic one from my childhood. And reads in that one and the the one with Mahomes and Kelsey, I think, are funny too. The I like the Chiefs' run of owning State Farm or whatever it is. I like them. I saw a graphic of breakdowns of, like, teams that people were rooting for last week, though. And, like, they had completely flipped from, like, three years ago when everyone was rooting for them against the Patriots except, like, New England. It had flipped, and, like, now everyone except Kansas Kansas and Missouri were rooting for the Ravens in the AFC Championship. So they have become kind of the, the villain, if you will. But we have the next Tom Brady – the current Bill Belichick going up against what we have called all year the best team in the NFL. 
at, and a historic franchise. I think that Super Bowl is as good as it gets. I'll say underrated. I'm kind of with you, John. Kind of with Do you. it again. This time with those <laughs> nuggies. <laughs> uh, sticking it's, in. It's, but, and also, one more thing. Yeah. Uh, you, you got something, Bob? No, I was just going to say, it's just him calling them the nuggies. Yeah. Is yeah. what makes nuggies. me laugh. <laughs> bro- I, I like to think he ad-libbed that and that he's a true artist. But, like, you see a quote that came out either last night or today where he was recruiting a defensive player in free agency. And he had a line that's like, yeah, when you see red, you think Super Bowls. Come to the Chiefs. Like, basically, like, we're out here stacking Super Bowls. You're like, that's a pretty badass line that Andy, that Andy Reid's flopping it out like that. Like, hey, yeah, come play with us. We go to the Super Bowl. That's what we do. And right now, that's what they do. All right. Uh, overrated, underrated. Speaking a little bit of some potentially elite quarterbacks, Justin Herbert. Saw the news that Jim Harbaugh is apparently, reportedly, a... $16 million man. That's what the number was that he is getting from the Chargers, mm. which was surprising because of how like little they spent money elsewhere. It was always the, the talk. But $16 million for Jim Harbaugh is because of Justin Herbert. And, Starstruck by him. I mean, that is a little nerdy <laughs> for Harbaugh to say. But I think, I think Herbert's overrated. I think he has been. But I also think that – all of that's going to like kind of come to fruition over the next couple of years. I think we'll look back and be like, Herbert wasn't overrated the whole time. He just had bad coaching. I think ultimately Harbaugh is going to make him the player he should be, and I think Herbert will go and, and be a top six, top seven NFL quarterback moving forward pretty comfortably. I'd say underrated. I, I, I have been always impressed with his physical prowess. Um, he's slipped a little in terms of efficiency, et cetera. I'm going to hold the situation with the coach as the as the culprit there um, until I see what he does under Harbaugh. I, I, I still think the guy's a franchise-level quarterback. It's why Harbaugh wanted that job. Uh, I, I would say underrated. He's been overrated up until this point, but, yeah, I think – I think he'll he'll all of a sudden he'll be with Harbaugh and he'll be like yeah like you said Bob he was the coaches were holding him back that that was the problem and maybe that's true maybe that, that maybe that is the issue although uh, Brandon Staley apparently set to almost go back to the Rams that's heating up there okay. kind of uh, that's interesting yeah yeah no, like, Raheem Morris Raheem Morris left Staley who was of course used to be their defensive coordinator they're talking about bringing him back and kind of doing a little rehabilitation program with him it's amazing how nfl coaches just recycle man it's it's unbelievable i I get that mindset but like is his career just supposed to be done yeah like if you lose as a head coach no i agree when you say like recycle i mean like he he might still be a good defensive mind although he didn't show that with the chargers but like you know his age is just supposed to be it it's your last shot no and i I think maybe part of it is it's a sport that's under the magnifying glass so much it probably happens in all sorts of businesses you know where people go and they you know yeah their their career's not over when they get ousted from a job or leave a job have there been a lot of like disgraced ceos in business that like maybe don't get to be a ceo right away again but like go down and like you are on a board or you know doing something and rehabilitating you Grab power again, or do you kind of get retired and yeah? Like that? I'd say at CEO level, there's more of that where you get you know big golden parachute and you move on um, and do start your own business, do something entirely do, yeah. different. But I'd say there's a lot of senior executives that are like at VP, SVP, EVP level, depending upon the company. Where yes, they resurface at another place, and it might even be a lesser title, but it's like still a big job. Yeah, yeah. So a little bit of retread there and recycling. True. Speaking of more coordinators, 
Uh, underrated, overrated, the Pittsburgh Steelers hiring Arthur Smith as their offensive coordinator. Well, if Arthur Smith is used to bad quarterback play and, <laughs> uh, he, and and like running the ball, Pittsburgh's the place for him. If I'm a Pittsburgh Steelers fan, like it doesn't excite you. It doesn't excite you. Now, if you tell me he's gonna turn Najee Harris into to Derrick Henry and that you know he can find him a quarterback this offseason, and you know maybe if they actually go out and try to trade for somebody, like if you're Pittsburgh, you should be calling Chicago, I think, and saying, hey. We want Justin Fields. What is it going to take? Because I do think the rest of their team is probably good enough to be elevated by a quarterback. And I think Justin Fields would be a big upgrade of what they have. But, like, right now on its surface, I'll say the hire of Arthur Smith is very overrated. I, I don't know how that would get you excited. Agree. I don't even really have to say much more. It's uh, There's nothing that's – and I, you have better experience with Arthur Smith as a Titans fan – I just there's nothing I've seen that's ever impressed me much. He was he was awesome with the Titans at first. I mean he he truly was, and you know a lot of that was like, hey, Derrick Henry's going to run the ball, and we're going to hit play action, and Tannehill's going to be a breath of fresh air. And we got at the time actually had some pretty good weapons with Corey Davis and young AJ Brown and Johnny Smith. Like you had some good weapons, but the offense was really good with Arthur Smith. But then I, I can't get out. Like the moment that he started interviewing for those head coaching jobs before the Baltimore Ravens playoff game in Nashville, and he came in with a game plan that was completely predictable and stubborn, and you scored, like, 13 points, and, like, were, you, you lost a game at home you should have won. Like, that was kind of the end of his career as far as I was concerned because he was underwhelming in Atlanta. And I do think as a coordinator, Bob, he makes the cardinal sin or he commits the cardinal sin of being accused of not getting his best players the ball. As a fantasy owner of Bijan Robinson last right, season, right. yeah, I yeah. would concur. As uh, anybody that's had Kyle Pitts on their team the last three years, like you I had them a, both. Yeah, you, you've been tough. Hopefully, not on the same team. It felt yes. So, oh, did you finish in last? No, actually, made it to the playoffs, but uh, okay. But I dumped Pitts towards the yeah. end of the season. That's yeah. how bad it got. Yeah, I mean, like that's that's the biggest sin you can have as an offensive play caller is being accused of not getting the ball to your best players, trying to be too smart, and. You know, like, hey, we got Tyler Algier and Cordell Patterson. We're going to give them some carries today. Sorry, Bijan, you're not going to get the ball. Or we're not going to throw you six passes a game because he should have been catching six passes a game. And Kyle Pitts, you're going to be used as a decoy, and we're not really going to throw you the ball either. Like, that, that's bad. That's bad. When you think of the best offensive play callers, chances are they're going to be some that force feeds their best players. Andy Reid looks a lot better. Patrick Mahomes looks a lot better. Whenever you're throwing the ball to Travis Kelsey, 10 times. Mike McDaniel's a genius when he's throwing the ball to Tyree Kill 12 times a game. Matt, uh, Sean McVay went back to being a genius with Matthew Stafford because they threw the ball to Cooper Cup enough to get him almost 2,000 yards. And then you have 12, 14, 15 targets a game. That's t- It's typically that easy and, and sometimes. Like the, the Cowboys, think about how many times they targeted CeeDee Lamb per week. Think about how bad the Eagles offense looked when all of a sudden they quit targeting A.J. Brown. Sometimes it's just get the ball to your best players, and Arthur Smith doesn't do that. Or at least he didn't do that in Atlanta. I don't know if he's really got anybody to give the ball to in Pittsburgh. I mean, I guess like force feed George Pickens. George Pickens, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It's all about the quarterback there. I mean, you could tell me it was just like, hey, he didn't have a quarterback in Atlanta. And I would say, okay, because Mariota and Ritter and, and Haneke are about the worst trio you could have in, in today's NFL. Yeah, I think it's just interesting that obviously had success in Tennessee and then just went to Atlanta and it's just completely I was, I was, night and day. I was going to say that trio is pretty bad, but then you look at the Mr. Trubisky, Kenny Pickett, Mason Rudolph trio, it's not much better in Pittsburgh. No, no. Off of 
that for a second, though, but it's still in the NFL. So with Ben Johnson out of the picture, now there's a little bit of chatter. Could Belichick be back in a conversation with Washington? I think if you're Washington, yeah, that makes the most sense. I mean, as as an owner that wants to make a splash, that just bought the team, that wants to show a new regime, I thought Belichick would have been kind of their first choice, or at least Vrabel would get a look. Instead, they're like, hey, we want a young offensive innovator. And Ben Johnson said he's staying in Detroit. There was some pushback that said, yeah, Ben Johnson was asking for Harbaugh money and wanted 16 to $18 million a year, and nobody wanted to pay it yet. And, you know, Slowick got a raise to stay in Houston. They said, you know, maybe he just wants to stay and get another year under his belt. I don't know exactly what happened there. But, yeah, if you're Washington, who else is left out there? It's true. If you're not going to hire one of those two coordinators. Like, do you go with McDonald from Baltimore? You know, the defensive mind there that, you know, coached a good defense. Do you – you go with a proven legend like Belichick and just give him more control? I don't know. They're going for a second interview with Dan Quinn. <laughs> I mean, like, if you're the worst a, of those hires, if yeah. you're a Commanders fan, like, that, that would probably send you over the edge. I, I, like, this owner sucks. Like, this owner, this owner still sucks. <laughs> I, I was going to say that I still stand by that the, the Commanders is an attractive job with the new ownership and, you know, some decent tools and other things. Uh, they, they, they should. They should be going after Belichick at this point. I think there's probably a good group, uh, a good group of fans that cross over that are both Orioles and Commanders fans. You know, being there in that area, you know, maybe they got grandfathered in from the, to the Orioles and, and DC and the football team when the Ravens and you know Nationals weren't really a thing. But going from Rod Rivera to Dan Quinn would be like the Orioles going from 27th in payroll to like 24th. Yeah. Like, we'll spend an extra couple million dollars, but not really anything significant. Yeah. yeah. Good job by you, Sam. Good topics. We'll wrap up the show, set you up for the rest of the day, and tell you what we got planned for you tomorrow after the break. It's the morning show here on Fan Run Radio.